ahead and grab out your Bible and something to take some notes this morning, everybody. You can turn, actually, I know some of you are flipping towards like Luke 2. Turn to Exodus chapter 1, all right? We are starting our Christmas series of the year for unto us. And so we're going to start it in Exodus chapter 1. It will make sense, I promise, in just a few minutes. And if it doesn't make sense, come see me afterwards, all right? But it's December, everybody. So let's start it off with a little bit of a quiz. How many of you love Christmas? We'll just start easy today, all right? I got about half participation there. Or honestly, maybe half of you hate Christmas. Here we go. How many of you love Christmas? Just a show of hands. There we go. A little more. You like the lights and the decorations and the songs. I probably lost a few of you at the Christmas songs, right? You just, all right, let's ask it a different way. How many of you like Christmas and decoration and all this stuff? As long as it stays in the month of December. Everybody there? We got, right, that's you. Some of you, it is like a rule, a hard theology of your life, right? You don't steal, you don't kill, and you don't decorate for Christmas till Thanksgiving is over. That is like your, your motto for life in those things. But we enjoy Christmas at my house. And honestly, I thought I enjoyed Christmas until I met Alyssa, my wife. Until I, I thought that I liked Christmas. I thought that I enjoyed all that the holiday could offer until I got married, everybody. And then I realized what loving Christmas really was. Because my wife doesn't care about all those rules, right? We would decorate for next Christmas right now if we could. That's how, that's how my house rolls, all right, everybody? Because we start, we play Christmas music in July and we put our tree up in September and it's a great time. We have a good... We have an awesome time at our house. And so it's not even in just English, right? We have it in Spanish and English and Hindi and Armenian. And we have a record player. And so we have the Cantonese Chinese Christian Children's Choir singing Christmas songs in my house. It is the North Pole in the Workman House. All right, everybody. And so I love Christmas. I am all in. I enjoy it beyond anything. And so now it is December. And so all of you Scrooges have no excuse. All right. We can drag you into our Christmas loving in December. You have no excuse again. So I am all in. I love it. But I want to just bring to you this morning as we start our Christmas series. A, a, I wouldn't even say a fight. I would just say a, a struggle that I have each year. And don't get me wrong. I love it. I am in. All right. I'm not like secretly up here hating on Christmas and saying one thing. I love everything about it. I love the eating. Praise God, somebody. I love the presents. I love the lights. I like the songs. I like it all. But I would just submit to you because I want to love you well and I want to pastor you well. Here at the beginning of December, I want to just bring a struggle that I have with a lot of the things that go on, a lot of the things that happen in my own life and the way that I perceive a lot of things in the hopes that maybe we can fight this struggle together this year. Because as wonderful as Christmas is, as wonderful as the holiday is, there is no other holiday in the Western world. There is no other holiday in our culture that is as full of propaganda and messages as the Christmas season. And here's what I mean by that. I'm not humbug and Scrooge this year, right? That's not it. But no matter what year it is, no matter how the year has gone, sometime around Thanksgiving, maybe a little bit earlier, every ad that you see, Every show that you watch, every movie that comes out, every Hallmark special that looks just like the one the year before, every movie that happens has the same message that this will be the year. This is the Christmas morning that everything will be set right. This is the morning. And you watch this. Every commercial, every ad campaign, every message that tries to get pushed to us is that this Christmas morning, you will wake up and the world will be right once more. That this Christmas morning, you'll wake up. This is the year it all comes together. Strife will dissipate. Depression will disappear. That everything will be made right on Christmas morning. That you'll wake up and your spouse will surprise you with a brand new Lexus, right? 
mortgaged over 90 years so you can pay that the rest of your life. You, you wake up and everything will be right. You wake up and all things will be... And this is the year. This is the year that you will travel to your family's house or in-laws and you will not think about why you don't like them. This is the year. Come on, somebody. Like this is the year that that crazy uncle or that estranged cousin will apologize to you on Christmas morning. This is what's going to happen. In fact, they will sit down with you and eat and agree with all of your religious and political views. This is the year that it's going to happen. And you, you begin to think, yes, this is the year. You begin to think, yes, this is the time it's going to happen. That, this is, and your kids, let me just tell you about your kids, everybody. This Christmas, your kids will open their presents. And they will look at you and they will say, thank you, mother. And thank you, father. This is what I wanted. And they won't get bored five hours away from that present. They won't get bored. In fact, they won't ask for anything from six months after Christmas this year. This is the year that things will happen. They won't look at it and cry and say, I wanted the blue one, not the red one. I speak from experience, everybody. This is the year, though, that they will be happy with what they are given and content. This is the year everything will be made right. As some of you are sighing with happiness right now, like you just watched the commercial. You're like, yes, this is the, that's the trap, everybody. That's the trap that somehow this Christmas morn, everything will be. And we have so bought into this idea that Christmas will fix everything. That when the Christmas blues hit us in January, we are suddenly thrown into depression and thinking, well, maybe next Christmas is when it will happen. Maybe next Christmas, everything will be made right. And so what I want to offer you today is just in our short time that we have. And again, I'm, I'm all in. I love Christmas. But what I want to offer you today is maybe something that will last a little bit longer than just this month. Maybe something that doesn't throw us into the Christmas blues in January. Something that maybe is for every month of our lives. Something that after the tree is gone, whether dead gone or up in the attic gone. After the tinsel and the lights and everything comes back down. After everything is said and done, this stays in place. And I want to do it here at the first week of December before we kind of get carried away in the craziness of it all. Because I think sometimes you hit like December 8th or 9th and it's over, right? You have Christmas parties and classes and events and things. And everything starts to just rumble you towards the end of the year. And so before it happens, or maybe while you're just starting to let it happen, we can kind of gain a little bit of control back in December as a church. All right, everybody? When my child Elijah, he's our oldest son, when he turned five or six, it's been a couple of years now, uh, he was having a particularly bad day. I know they have lots of bad days all the way up to... Somebody told me in teenage, it just keeps on going. We're praying, everybody, all right? We're just praying. But he had a bad day one day, and we were setting the record for how many times we could say no, my wife and I. We just... On that particular day, we said no. I, as many of you as parents know, you set that record almost every week. And so it was just no, 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 you can't, no, you can't do that. And he would just come up with things that we just had to say no to. And eventually, you get tired of saying no. You feel that? You get tired of being the broken record. You just want to say yes to something. Like, you want, to do, you want to go light the house on fire? Yes, you go and do that. You just go, like, I just I need to say yes at some point. But he asked something else, and I can't even remember what it was, but the answer had to be no. Like, for the welfare of the child and my own sanity, the answer had to be no. And so he's crying, and he goes to his room. And back then, we would kind of, like, follow to make sure he was okay. We don't do that anymore. Come on, somebody. We just gave that up a long time ago. But he was, we went to go check, and my wife was standing kind of outside the door, and she heard him. He was sitting on his bed crying. And she heard him talking to himself. And he was saying, I wish, I wish that I was the one in control. And I thought, man, that is my prayer every day of my life. Like, that is my, like, I pray that, I don't know how many times, I just wish that I was the one in control. And so this month, before we lose all control... Before we lose all semblance of what this holiday actually should be, before we lose it all, let's just make a pact, you and I, all right? We're going to enjoy it. 
All right, I'm not saying we're going to tear down our lights and go, you know, burn your tree and sit in the dark, bah humbug, and be a killjoy all Christmas long. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to gather together as families. We're going to sing songs. We're going to enjoy. We're going to eat. Praise the Lord. We're going to do all those things. We're going to enjoy Christmas together, but we're going to make a pact that as we do those things, as we do those things, we're going to continue to remember. Honestly, we're going to continue to remember what has been done. Because for us as Christians, this is the Advent season. And so if you've heard this word maybe in the last couple of weeks, this is our Advent series, everybody. That's what this is. But Advent just means the coming or the arrival. And so this is a celebration for us. But as Christians, this is not just a celebration of some event 2,000 years ago, though that is a part of it. But this is not just kind of celebrating, oh, the sweet baby Jesus came in a manger, and so we're going to throw a party, and that's that, though that is a part of it. But the Advent series in season is just celebrating not just that Christ came, but also that he is at work in our lives today. And so we celebrate that he came, but we also celebrate the things that he's doing in our lives today. And then we look forward with anticipation for his returning, not as a baby, but as a ruling king. That's what the Advent season is to us. It's not just a celebration of what has happened. It's not just a celebration of what is happening, but it's a celebration of what is to come. And so as Christians, we're just going to have this, this idea. We're going to make this pact. That as we live through life that is now, we're not going to give in to the idea that this Christmas morning will be the solving of all of our problems. But we are going to look back and celebrate what Jesus has done, that he came in the flesh. We're going to celebrate what he is doing in our lives today. And then, man, we're going to look with anticipation when he returns. We're going to continue to celebrate that. So Advent for us is going to be looking at that. And honestly, you'll see a lot of shadows in the world that Christ has come. You'll see shadows of things that have happened. And so Christ coming 2,000 years ago has cast shadows in our world today of that, the fact that he has come. You'll see it in the nativity and the manger scenes. You'll see it in people's houses and yards. You'll see some people got Santa Claus bowing down to Jesus. All of that is a shadow that Jesus has come. But then you'll see shadows that he is at work in the world today. You'll see things in relationships being restored, in healings that have happened. In this time of season and season of Christmas when hope rises in our hearts, the shadow that Christ is at work in our hearts today. But then we live in the reality of a broken world. We live in the reality of relationships that are busted, in the reality of depression that comes in, a reality of anxiety that just harps on our lives and darkness that we walk through. And we live in those things. And honestly, all of that rises inside of us, this intense longing for the return of Christ. That one day he will return and set all things new. And so this Christmas, like I said, let's make a deal together. Because we'll enjoy it. We'll enjoy Christmas. We'll do all of the things that come along with the season. But then we're going to have this anticipation of our Christ returning. So go ahead. Those of you who've had your fingers stuck in your Bible for like an hour now. Go back to Exodus chapter 1, everybody. Uh, if you have your phone with you, you can look it up in your Bible on there. We'll have it on the screen. So back where we started. Exodus chapter 1. We're going to talk about today about God the Deliverer. As we march our way towards Christmas, we're going to look at attributes of God all throughout history, all throughout our Old Testament and New Testament. We're going to look at the things about God that rise this hope in our life that Christ has not only come, that Christ is not only at work, but that he is coming again, everybody. So Exodus chapter 1, and if you don't have a church background, I'll kind of catch you up quick to kind of get you to where we are in this verse. The children of Israel are in Egypt. And they arrive there not as slaves to begin with, right? They arrive there because Joseph works his way up through the Egyptian elite ruling class. And he brings Israel to Egypt. And so now they've become a part of the Egyptian empire. And so we pick up the story after Joseph has died. And the, Egypt, the Israelites are living in Egypt just as part of the empire there. And then we pick up the story in verse number 8. And so he says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and they're too mighty for us. 
So let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and fight against us, unless they join our enemies, escape from the land. And then in verse, next verse, therefore they set taskmasters to afflict them. They oppressed them. They built for Pharaoh the cities, Pithom and Ramses. They built for Pharaoh. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. This is just true for the people of God from like the beginning of history to now, by the way. Just to give you a free. That's not what the sermon's about, but that's just free for you. And the Egyptians were in the dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people work as slaves, made their lives bitter with service in mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field. And in their work, they made them work as slaves. Now, as we preach fairly often, I just want to kind of point out to you that this hardship and oppression and the things that happen to the people of God should not come as a surprise to you. Right. These are the people of God called by God after these are his chosen people living in this time. And they're dealt with. It says they deal with them shrewdly. And some of you might relate to that. Some of us might be. Yeah, this last year I have been dealt with shrewdly. I am a person I follow after God, but there are people in this world that have dealt with me shrewdly. And then it says that these people of God called to be God's people were dealt with oppressively. They were oppressed. And some of you say, yeah, I relate to that. I've had some oppression this year. And it might not even be oppression from people. It might not be. It might be a darkness that you have had to walk through. It might be a lust of the flesh that maybe you can't shake. It might be a sin or some oppression that's come on you. And we look at this and we can relate sometimes to the children of Israel living in this oppression. And it says that they dealt with them ruthlessly. It's in this reality that sometimes God's people walk through these situations. They walk through this darkness. And when we read our Bibles, oftentimes we're hoping for the happy and we skip forward so we can get to the happy parts. But oftentimes the people of God walk through oppression. And they walk through this ruthless dealing. They walk through these times of darkness and these times where they feel like, God, where are you? And it's where the children of Israel find themselves, where they feel like maybe even God has abandoned them. That this salvation God has promised them is make-believe. We can relate to that sometimes. We might not express it. We might have our church face on and we might say the right things, but we can relate to sometimes that we walk in a darkness or we walk in a moment where we feel like, God, where are you in the midst of this? And then we skip forward in the narrative as it progresses. Watch this in chapter two. It says, during those days, watch this in chapter two, the king of Egypt died. And then we'll go to chapter two in verse 23. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They groaned because of their slave. They groaned because of what had happened, because of they, and they cried out for help. They cry out for rescue. And it says that God heard their groaning. And watch this. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And watch this. And God knew. And this is an incredible passage, kind of just tucked away in Exodus about the character of who God is. And we kind of gloss over it because we're getting to the good parts, right? We want to see the plagues and we want to see the the march out of Egypt and the restoration and the promised land. And we want to get through all those things. This incredible passage about how God views the people of God, about the character of who God is. And I want to just kind of lay this before us this morning. The first point I just want you to see from this passage and jot it down if you're taking notes today. The first one is that God knows. That God knows. That God looks at his people and he knew, regardless of what you are walking through, regardless of the incredible circumstances that you may be passing through, I want you to know that God sees and God knows what it is that you walk through. That God knows. Because sometimes we feel like, well, God is watching everybody else but me. Well, God must see every other struggle but mine. God must see every other walk through darkness but my own. I am left here alone. But I want you to know today, when we are the people of God, called after his own name, God sees and God knows. That God knows in our lives. He's not surprised. He's not shocked by the things that we go through. God isn't like shuddering, wondering what to do. God knows. And even more than that, in this text, we also see that God hears. 
And not only does God know what we're walking through, he hears. Because isn't it true that when we walk through the hardest moments is when we feel like heaven is the most silent. When we walk through the darkest moments is when we feel like the prayers go the most unanswered. We feel like no one is listening. But I want you to see that God not only knows what we are walking through, God hears us when we call. We have this assurance, the Bible says, that he hears us when we cry out. That he hears us when we call. And I don't want you to get... You know, I don't want you to see this God not only knows, that God not only hears. And I don't want you to get faked out with this idea that God then remembers the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because we read that and we think of it in the wrong context. This isn't like God suddenly remembered, like God was just going about his day and the people cried out. And God was like, you know, there was something I was supposed to do. There was, I, I can't quite, it was on the back of my mind. I just can't, I can't, oh, right, I'm supposed to rescue. Okay, let's get this thing going. That's not what it means when it says that God remembered. God didn't suddenly like come to the realization, oh yeah, I did promise that, didn't I? That's probably something I should do. It doesn't mean that God suddenly had this thought, God suddenly remembered. This means that now it was time. That now it was time for God to move. That now it was the time for God to make good on his promise. Now was the time for him to fulfill what he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when the Bible talks about that, it says not only God's no, not only does he hear, but then I want you to see this from this verse, but then God delivers. God delivers, he rescues, he intervenes on his people's behalf. God intervenes on behalf of those who are enslaved. And again, even if you don't have a church background, I don't think this next part will be news to you, right? Because God raises up Moses. Everybody's heard about Moses. Moses now is the second one to rise up in the Egyptian elite ruling class after Joseph. And so Moses becomes, right, this, this high ruler in the land of Egypt, but he sees his people in slavery. And Moses has this idea, I'm going to be a deliverer. Moses has this, this dream, I'm going to be a leader. But it gets dashed because Moses sees an Egyptian taskmaster belittling and mistreating an Israelite. And so Moses tries to break it up and he ends up killing the Egyptian taskmaster. And he doesn't think anybody sees. And so he hides his body in the desert and then just kind of like whistles and just goes back to work, right? And hopes nobody sees. But they have CSI in Egypt back then, right? So they kind of dust off the body and they're like doing fingerprints. And they're like looking and they're just like, Moses, it was Moses. But everybody knows. He finds out the next day. Everybody knows what he did. And so Moses has to flee into the mountain. And so this man who has been such a high ruling elite among Egypt is now a sheep herder in the hills in exile. Any dream of leadership, any dream of restoration is far gone until God comes to him one day, years and years and years later. It speaks to him through a bush that's burning but hasn't been consumed. And he says, Moses, I've heard my people's groanings. It's time. And you're going to go for me. And Moses is like, but I stutter, God. And God is like, but I don't. And so you need to go ahead and go on down to the... And Moses is like, did I mention I have flat feet? And God is like, I don't care. And Moses comes up with all of these like excuses not to go. And God just answers each one of us, each one of them, getting a little bit more mad each time. God's anger is roused against Moses. And finally, God is like, Moses, you're going. And if it makes you feel better, maybe you can take Aaron, your brother, with you. He's going to be an idiot, and he's going to cause you a lot of problems along the road. I'm going to have to deal with him years later, but yeah, you can take him with you if you want to. And so Moses shows back up in Egypt, and this begins this showdown between the Pharaoh of Egypt and the God of the universe. Because God not only saw, God not only heard, but now God is going to intervene. God is going to deliver his people. God is going to rescue them. And so God sends Moses to kind of have this showdown. Moses is standing before Pharaoh, and so God sends the plagues. He turns all the water to blood. Now, I don't know about you, but that would have been the tipping point for me. Like, all the water turned to blood. Like, if the, the Comey River and Lake Pontchartrain, everything in Louisiana turned to blood, I'm like, go. Take your people, turn the water back, and let's just get this thing out of here. But Pharaoh, in his, in his stupidity, Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. 
Pharaoh believed himself to be a divine ruler, which just always fascinates me with ancient cultures when they believe this about their kings and their pharaohs and their leaders, despite the fact that they kept dying. Come on, somebody. Like they just believe that the next one is a god and then he would die. And they believe the next one, it's just as incredible. You can study that on your own sometime later. But they, they believe, and so Pharaoh himself believes. He's been told since he was a child that he is a god, he is a divine ruler. And so he digs in his heels and doesn't let the people go. So the water is turned to blood and then Pharaoh digs in his heels. And so then comes the frogs, right? Then comes this plague of frogs, like frogs in your shower, frogs in your desk, frogs in your bed, frogs everywhere, just frogs. This isn't like a couple of toads in the pool. This is like frogs everywhere you can imagine, plague of frogs and nothing. And then you got like the gnats and the flies and the livestock die and the Egyptians break out in boils. And then it's just darkness. Like then it's just, just complete darkness over the land, which is amazing to me. If I told you to picture Egypt in your mind, what are you thinking? Like pyramids, sand, and sun. Come on, somebody. You were thinking like sun. Just darkness over the land. Egyptians got up to go to work. There's nothing. And Pharaoh digs in his heels. And Pharaoh kind of wishy-washy during the time. He's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you can go. But no, no, I'm a god, so you can't. And this is, he kind of like backtracks on himself, all these things, until you come to the Passover. This incredible shadow, by the way, of what will happen through the work and the life of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible moment of shadowing in the Old Testament to the New. But the Passover happens. But God says, okay, the angel of death is going to pass over Egypt. And every firstborn son in every household is going to die. And Moses comes to the people and God gives him a word for the people and he tells them, but if you kill a spotless lamb and you spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your house, then your children will be spared. And he has some other things that they needed to do, but that was the main one. And so that night, after all, the angel of death passes over the land and kills every firstborn son in every house in Egypt, except the ones that have spread the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And the Bible talks about this. This is not like we can just kind of explain away and think about it. The Bible says they woke up and the sound of mourning upon mourning and the cries of the people of Egypt, the men and women, as they woke up to the firstborns being dead. And Pharaoh's own son wasn't saved from the death. The hubris of this man, the hubris of thinking, I am divine, I am a God, and brings us. And finally, Pharaoh in his grief is just like, go. And the children of Israel pack up their things and they leave the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh, as you can imagine, this grief turns into rage and he realizes that they're leaving. And so he gathers his armies and he pursues them, not to bring them back, but to destroy them outright. And here we see God begin the deliverance of his people. And I know you might be here today and you might be thinking, okay, Ben, I'm with you on God sees and I'm with you on God hears. I can understand that maybe God knows what I'm going through and maybe God sees what I'm going through. And I I can go with you that far, but you are losing me on this idea of God's miraculous intervention in the lives of his people because I have not seen anything close to it. Like there has been no plague of frogs in my life. There has been no plague of flies. I have prayed it on many people and I have not seen it. Come on, somebody. I have had, and you might be saying, I have not seen this miraculous intervention in my own life. If there has been a plague, it has been upon me. Like, you don't know, in the life that I am walking through, in the the darkness and the bitterness and the depression and the things that I am walking through in my life, I have not seen this deliverance of God for his people. It's great that it happened for Israel. But I have not seen it in my own life. I've not seen these plagues. I've not seen this miraculous God who intervenes on behalf. And yet I would just submit to you, before I get into the rest of this message, you're here. Like you're here. And maybe you're not here for any other reason than to hear me tell you that God sees and that God hears and that God is at work in the mess in your life. Because if you think about this, why, why would you be here if not if God had not drawn you? 
in, in the vast unchurchedness of our culture, in the ways that we have had our lives and our culture uprooted, why would you not be here unless to hear that God not only sees, God not only knows, but that God intervenes on behalf of his people? That God loves us. That God hears when you call. That God is watching you. Why would you be here if you're not saved? Who invited you? Why are you here in this moment or watching online? Why would you be listening to this except to hear that God not only hears, God not only knows, but God intervenes, that he is miraculously intervening, that God is a deliverer. But honestly, more than any of that, and what we seem to miss, and I want us to get back on the same page today, is that God has already intervened in the most miraculous way possible. At 2,000 years ago, that not a plague of flies, not a Moses coming out of the desert, not anything of that, more than any of that, God himself came down. That more than anything that we could possibly imagine, and we think about the plagues, and we think about the miracles, and we think about, well, why hasn't God done this or that? But more than any of that, more miraculous than anything we could possibly imagine, God himself came down. God himself didn't send Moses. He didn't send another emissary. He didn't send another prophet or another priest. He didn't send another pastor or a preacher. He sent his only son to come down. And more miraculous than anything, and maybe we are too busy. Maybe we're too busy looking for the plague of gnats or a plague of flies or darkness. Or maybe you are too hell-bent on trying to see the sky ripped open or the darkness or the fire at night to see the miracle that is God himself, Emmanuel. I am preaching 98% better than you are responding, everybody. All right, that's just, that's all right. I, I am just, I'll just have church all by myself. I don't care. We'll just have a good time. So Moses leads the children of Israel right up to the Red Sea. Pharaoh is coming after them with his army to destroy them. We pick it up in verse 29. But the children of Israel, watch this. God intervenes. God delivers. The children of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, splits the waters, being a wall to the left on the right and on their left. And it says that he splits them. And the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. The Lord delivered them. God the deliverer rescues them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw them dead on the seashore. And they saw the great power that the Lord used against them. And so the people feared the Lord. Believed in the Lord. And they believed in his servant Moses. Now here's something to note everybody. And this is my Christmas segue by the way. Because honestly, it's not every Christmas you start off with gnats and flies and frogs and the army dead in the Red Sea and Merry Christmas, everybody. Like, it's not normally how we do things around here. But watch this. It's not a normal progression. Like, this is not where we would normally then just somehow say God delivered his people out of slavery and now we're at Christmas time. What does God delivering these people have to do with Christmas? Well, first, let's honestly be on a little bit truthful with each other, a little honest about what's actually going on here. How much deliverance is actually being delivered in this verse? Because God has brought his children of Israel, right? They've come out of Egypt now. He's brought them out of an oppression, out of an oppressed land. And now he's leading them to a promised land of milk and honey. He's leading them to the the land that he promised their forefathers. They're going to come out and they're headed in the right direction. But how long is this deliverance actually going to last? Like a chapter? Maybe two chapters? It's like when the kings of Israel and Judah... They lead the people of Israel, they lead them back, right, to the, to the worship of God. They lead their hearts back to worship the one true God. It lasts like a generation or two at most. And sometimes we'll, we'll kind of dart in and out of the Old Testament and we'll say, well, look, they got delivered and then we leave the story. But this lasts like a chapter. It's like two chapters before they go right back into their sin and right back into their, their estrangement from God. It's the story of the Old Testament in and out. It's a story, but honestly, we'll be honest about this because we see Israel fearing the Lord. We see them respecting Moses. We see all these things that look great, but it doesn't last. 
not a whole lot of deliverance that happens there. See, Moses brought an external deliverance. He brought these people out of slavery, out of physical slavery, and headed them towards the promised land, even though it's going to take them years and decades to actually make it there. But something so much bigger happens in Matthew. I want you to see this, because this is just the shadow. This is just the shadow of the deliverance that is coming in Matthew. Watch, everything points towards this. Matthew chapter 1. So Joseph is visited by an angel. And the angel tells him about his betrothed Mary. And this is what he says about the Christ child. He says in verse 21 that she'll bear a son. And you'll call his name Jesus. And why will you call his name Jesus? Watch this. This is, again, we say this and we quote this verse and we kind of just pass over to Christmas time. Watch this. He says, for he will save. He will deliver. He will rescue. And what will he do? He'll bring his people out of Egypt. No. What's he going to do? He's going to rid us of all the problems that we would ever face in this life. No. He's going to get rid of all the sufferings. No. That's not what it says. Watch this. He will save. He will rescue. He will deliver his people from their sins. He will deliver his people from their sins. See, Moses saved and delivered the people of God out of physical slavery. He saved and delivered the people of God out of Egypt. But the coming of Jesus Christ is not the deliverance of your life and mine from suffering in the here and now. But it is the deliverance of our lives from the root cause of whatever brokenness has entered this earth. The plague of sin and of death. He's delivered us from the root cause of all the bitterness and sin that would come. The plague of death. He has sounded the death toll for death itself. That the coming of Jesus has sounded that. And so we now live our lives in the freedom he has bought. With his blood at Calvary. The coming of Jesus is not some historic event that we celebrate 2,000 years ago. That's not just what we do at Christmas time. The Advent is not just that he came. It's that he is at work in our lives today. And that he has saved us from sin itself. That he has saved us and redeemed us. The coming of Jesus fulfills the law. Fulfills this works-based righteousness that honestly has crept its way back into the church, even in modern days. This idea that we have to somehow work our way into the love of Christ. The coming of Jesus fulfills the law. Fulfills that he has become our righteousness. Us who could not become perfect. We who could not do it right to get back to law. Who broke every law there ever was. Jesus has become our perfection. He has become our forgiveness. He has become our sacrifice, fulfills the law. And so if you're asking, does it mean that Jesus came and so now we no longer suffer and we no longer walk through darkness? Absolutely not. You must be new here. I would never say that because it's not true. But the coming of Jesus abolishes the hold of sin on our lives once and for all. Now, I still suffer and I still sin because I still have a flesh part of me until Jesus makes all things new. But listen to me. He has conquered sin, hell, and the grave. He has conquered death in itself. And so as we celebrate the Advent, as we celebrate this thing, what I said in the beginning, we are living at this this strange time in history that we're not only looking back at what has happened, we're not only looking back and celebrating that Christ came, but we are living in a time where we are celebrating the shadows that he is at work in our lives today. But then because of that, because Christ has arrived, because he didn't send Moses this time, we are celebrating that. That it's God with us. But now we are looking forward towards the return of Christ. That he will make all things new. Because Christ has come. Because he has come, we are forgiven of our sins. So like I said, I still struggle. We still struggle because we still have a flesh. But we struggle with the idea and the knowledge and the hope that God has forgiveness of our sins. And so when I fall, I get back at knowing that the admiration and knowing that my forgiveness is not based on what I did last week. 
knowing that my standing with God is not based on that, but I come back in reconciliation and restoration. And honestly, just I come back in forgiveness, knowing that the, the love God has for me isn't rattled by the actions that I took, but that I can rise and fall knowing that my sins have been paid for. My sins have been paid for. And then we look forward to the return of Christ, that he will invade for one final time the darkness. For one final time, he is coming back, not as a baby, but as a ruling king. And one final time, he is coming back. And on that day, all of our relationships will be made right. On that day, all anxiety will flee. On that day, all depression will disappear. On that day, all things will be made new. On that day, he says, the former things have passed away. There'll be no remembrance of it, the sad things. No remembrance of it. The sadness that death has wrought, no remembrance of it. The moments we walked through where we cried out, God, where are you? It says it would pass away. And it feels like right now, the Bible talks about this, that we're looking through this, this opaque, this, we're looking through this, this foggy piece of glass. Honestly, when I think about it in my mind, this is just my own holy imagination. It's like looking through a shard of a stained glass window. This just broken piece. But one day we'll step back far enough that we'll see the beauty of it all. And listen to me, church, we are one day closer. We are one day closer. I told you in my house, we start Christmas early, everybody. We, we like sing the songs in July. We put up our tree in September. And we start the decorating. We'll start in January, February. We just love Christmas. We started early. And this year, actually, we celebrated Christmas over Thanksgiving with my wife's side of the family. We just got it out of the way early. But we arrived at the house, right, for Thanksgiving week where we were going for vacation. We arrived and the Christmas tree was up and all the presents for my kids was all stacked up under that tree. And you can imagine the chaotic trance that put my children in to arrive and see that stack of children. My kids, three of them, are all under 10. And so it was just this amazing moment where they saw this. But that is all they could think about for the rest of the week. Like they just, their eyes are glued on the Christmas. They can be doing something else. Like walking across the room and all they're looking at is that those, that sounded like they're running into walls just looking at those Christmas tree, right? My daughter Hava is bringing presents to people at the dinner table. Are you sure you don't want to open this? Are you sure you don't want to? Are you sure? Like, right? Like, and they're like shaking. Like, what is it? Could it be for me? Like, is it, is it mine? Is this like, why does it sound like broken glass? Like, what is like, what is just this anticipation of what could it be? And is it for me? When can we, oh, like with just anticipation, this incredible fixation, incredible anticipation of what it could be. Let us be marked like that. Let us be marked. We are one day closer. And honestly, those of us, we have that realization. We are an hour closer than when we came in today. An hour closer to the return of Christ. An hour closer to the making of all things new. An hour closer to restoration and meetings with our loved ones. An hour closer to that day when all things will be made right. An hour closer to what it is. Let us be marked by that anticipation. And listen to me. Not a type of anticipation, not a fixation that somehow keeps us paralyzed in this world that we live in. Not a fixation that paralyzes us from compassion and engaging with those around us. Not a fixation that leaves us from actually reaching those in this world around us of compassion. But this hope and anchor of our souls that we celebrate this Christmas time, that he has not only come, that God is not only at work in the world today through the power of the Holy Spirit, but that one day we turn our eyes towards eternity. One day he will return. One day he's coming back, everybody. Let's pray together. Father, today, 
We thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you that Jesus did come. We thank you that our sins could not have been forgiven if he had not come and he had not died on the cross. But we thank you that he rose again. We thank you that he stands at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that we can turn our eyes with anticipation. Lord, we thank you that we can set our hope. We can set, Father, our hope and our strength and our it's all set on the returning of Christ. And so one more time, we thank you for the Advent season, for what has happened, for what is happening today, and for what will come. We thank you. And just continue praying, church, in Jesus' name. Continue to pray. Continue just to, just to honestly fixate on that hope we have in him. Because I have one more invitation I want to extend. Before we go today, before we end this service, if you're here today, and maybe you're listening to the story of the Exodus and you're listening to the story of Christ's birth and you're becoming to realize that Jesus' coming wasn't to start a holiday. It was coming to redeem us of our sins. And so if you're hearing that maybe for the first time or maybe you've heard it before, but it's finally clicking. God is finally drawing your heart. And maybe you're hearing that. I just want to give you an invitation today. And listen to me. It's not to join a church. It has nothing to do with that. I'm not going to take you in a side room and try to get you to, to give towards something or to be a part of my something I'm trying to build. I want to give you an invitation today to follow Jesus. Jesus who came, Jesus who died for your sins and for mine. Because listen to me, what he did on the cross when he paid for our sins, what he did when God rose him from the dead, what happened there means as much for you as it does for anybody else in this room. Every single one of us were sinners that God rescued. Every single one of us. And some of us just made it to the hospital before others. But listen to me, his redemption and his forgiveness is for you just as much as it is for anybody else. And maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe you've never had that told you. Maybe all you've had are derogatory or dismiss or things that have brought you down. Maybe somebody has told you that God couldn't love a person like you. Listen to me. He loves you and he wants you. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And so today, I just want to invite you to follow Jesus. I want to invite you because you can know before you leave today that your eternity is secure. And listen to me, it starts with a prayer of surrender. It starts with a prayer asking for forgiveness, a prayer of repentance. And a prayer acknowledging who Jesus is. And our church has dedicated ourselves. We will pray this with every single person who ever wants to pray it. We will pray it gladly with every person who wants to make that decision. And so right now, every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm not looking to embarrass you. I'm looking to introduce you to Jesus. But church, let's pray this with those. And if you want to pray this prayer, say it out loud right now. Say, Jesus, forgive me of all of my sins. Of all my mistakes, I surrender to you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. And all God's children said amen and amen. Come on, church. Can we give God praise for what he's done today?